Thank you so much for joining us here at Word Baptist Church. I'm Jamar Andrews. I'm the lead pastor, and I get the great privilege of shepherding here. I'm excited that you're joining us today for this sermon. You're about to receive text-driven preaching. My prayer is that God speaks to you through this time as you listen to this message. So enjoy, and God bless. to uh, open your Bibles to the uh, book of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 19 is where we will spend our time together uh, this morning as we continue our series, uh, Victory. Uh, but you might notice that it looks a little bit different, colors a little bit different, because uh, last week, Brother Walter uh, finished out uh, the first section of that, uh, the book of Ruth, and I appreciate him uh, faithfully taking care of you in uh, chapter 4. Uh, last week and uh, he and I were talking this week and beforehand I said you know I'm doing all this work it's famine and it's hard and then you get to come in in chapter four and have all the good all the good stuff going on but uh, I really appreciate him uh, he's such a blessing to me our church family and I'm so thankful uh, for him uh, last week taking care of you all in my absence uh, but I'm back and I'm looking forward to uh, continuing our series but we're taking a slight shift and we're going to be focusing on the life of Elisha uh, as we look at our victory series. Now, it would be hard for us to begin a series talking about Elisha without first just taking a small look at Elijah, the one uh, who was before him. And so today we're going to spend a little bit of time in an introductory sermon, if you will, uh, looking uh, at the life of Elijah and being able to identify some very key things uh, when it comes to victory in our life. You see, last week, Walter finished uh, Ruth chapter four. And for those of you that were able to uh, be a part of the entire journey, you know that in chapter one, things were very difficult for Ruth and uh, for her family. Uh, but by the time you get to the end of the book uh, in chapter four, uh, God had really turned things around uh, in their life. And so I felt like it'd be very important for us to look at the dynamics of what happens in our lives. When we see great victory, we see God do great things in our lives. But what happens whenever trials follow? Uh, you see, we're going to be looking at a book uh, that's entitled First Kings. You see, this is a, a book that comes after the time period of the judges, the, after the time period of the book of Ruth. And uh, the, the nation was in a very difficult time. And so how do we handle things after we see these great movements of God in our lives individually or in our families collectively or in our church or in our world? But then on the back end of that, we face various trials. How do we handle that? And I find that the text today is going to give us great grounds for being able to understand the dynamics of that. And I believe we'll learn some key things uh, if we will implement them in our lives. We'll be ready in those difficult moments after we come off the mountaintop and to the valley, how God can sustain. Uh, this is very personal to me. 
Because as I think about this particular time in Elisha's life, it reminds me of a time in my own life. It was 14 years ago. I went on my very first mission trip and I went to West Africa to a country uh, named Burkina Faso. And uh, I had just gotten saved, just was saved in February. And I went in June and I knew God had called me on that trip. It was a medical trip. And so uh, my job, because you don't want me anywhere near nothing medical, okay? You don't want me prescribing nothing. I might pray for you and connect with the good physician, and he can work on you, but you don't want me messing with nothing. And so my job was as the people were coming to the clinics, as they were coming in from the villages and all around, it was to greet them. It was to have a conversation with them, ask them spiritual questions to see where they stood. And it was a great time, and God really used that in my life to confirm the call on my life. And it was on that trip that I knew very clearly that God was calling me to ministry. Now, I was deathly afraid of that. I hadn't gotten to a position where I agreed with it just yet, but it was on that trip that God called me to ministry. Uh, And I remember coming back, and I remember coming back. It was just great spiritual moment, great spiritual high. And about three days later, I started experiencing some very severe sickness. Like my fever was like 104. I was in the ER and the doctors, they were all looking at me like, what's wrong with you? I can remember they came in with like four different bottles and they were taking all this blood and they were mixing it all together and they were trying to figure out what was going on with me. And let me just be honest, they never figured it out. And I remember that what I had to do from when I got back, those first initial days got really sick. I had to go to the doctor every week and they drew blood to check things out and they never knew. And all of a sudden, about two months later, I went and they were like, everything's good now. Have no idea what happened. No idea what went on. But I can tell you, as I sat in that hospital bed, it, my parents weren't here. They lived in Texas. My grandparents couldn't get out at night. I wasn't in a relationship. And as I sat in that hospital bed and I did a little bit of time and it was just me and God, I began to ask myself some real serious questions. Like, I know I was calling this trip. I know you called me to ministry. So, you know, what's going on in my life? Why, why are these things happening? And God taught me some very important things in that hospital room and in that in my life that I want to share today. But specifically, I want to use the word of God to be able to show us through the life of Elijah how we can handle difficulties. And so the title of the message is Preparing for Trials After Victory. So how do we prepare for trials and difficulties after we've seen God do some great things? Is it that he's not in control anymore? Is it that he's not still working and not on the throne? What what, what has happened uh, for these things to take place? And we're going to look uh, at Elijah's, at his life. Now, the context of of our passage is that uh, we are in the time of the kings. And if you remember, in Ruth, we were in the time of judges. Judges was establishing, getting us set up. Uh, Samuel, we were going to see a king come in, started off with Saul, then went to David, then David, then we had Solomon. And remember, there was a whole lot of mess that began to happen in the nation of Israel. And ultimately, it led to a division where you had a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And God's people were doing all kind of wicked things. But God still continued continue to send prophets to his people to declare to them his will and his plan and what he desired to do. And in the midst of all this division and all this difficulty, there was also idolatry that had begun to take root in very major ways. One of the main idols that the people were grappling with and serving and following was called Baal. And Baal was an idol of fertility, a Canaanite false God. And so it had to do with fertility of agriculture, of animals, and even human sexuality. And so this type of idolatry became rampant all throughout the land, especially in the northern 
northern kingdom. And so whenever there'll be worship and different things going on, there'll be human sacrifices. They'll be sleeping around. They'll be trying to wake Baal up and do all these things. And so that had gripped the people. And so God has sent in Elijah to be able to uh, hold them accountable and to be able to call them to repentance. What was leading this was you had two evil individuals, Jezebel, just by the record. Anybody know anybody named Jezebel? Anybody named a child Jezebel? And I've never met a Jezebel or a Judas. I don't know them names tend to not get used when it comes to naming babies. But you had this wicked queen. She was named Jezebel. And then you had a king named Ahab. And they were both, he was supposed to be the leader, but she was the one leading him. And she was wicked. And so they led the people to follow along in this idolatry. And so what we have here is that you have Elijah called by God and he is challenging them and he's challenging the nation. And in the chapter that precedes this in chapter 18, there's this showdown that happens on top of Mount Carmel. And if you hadn't read it in a while, I encourage you to read it. It'll get you excited, all excited. So Elijah challenges the prophets of Baal and it's a whole bunch of them, like 400 something of them. And he's like, all right, we're going to see who God is really God. And so they get out the sacrifices and he looked at them. He said, y'all first. And they hooping and hollering, making all this racket and they cutting themselves. And you know what happened? Nothing. You know why? Because Baal was a false God. And so Elijah, he's making fun of him and mocking him. Maybe he went on a journey. Maybe he's using the bathroom. Y'all need to get a little bit louder. Right. And so then they realize nothing's going to happen. So then Elijah says, okay, my turn. And so he gets the altar ready. He gets the sacrifice on the altar. He said, keep putting all this water, more water, more water, more water, more water. And then he prays. He's like, look, God, it's time to go ahead and show him what's up. The contemporary version. Fire falls down, burns up the sacrifice, burns up the altar, licks up the water, burns up the rocks. Right. And you, you would think you, you would think that everybody's like, yes, we know now. But can I tell you, that's not what happened. That's why we have chapter 19. Because you move from this great movement of God where he shows and he displays his power in such a a very visible, unmistakable way. You would think that now Jezebel and Ahab and all the people are going to be like, you know, what? the Lord is the God, is the the one true God and we're going to follow him. But that's not what happens. It's amazing to me as you look at this, because there are going to be some events that unfold after Elijah goes through these things. And we're going to get a chance to see him wrestle with some real things. And I'm so thankful that God has allowed us to have this in his word. And that's one of the things I love about God is he shares with us the good, the bad and the ugly. He's not trying to keep anything away from us. And I just see that in this moment in Elijah's life, if we're going to be serious about the fact that God has already gained the victory, we have to understand that there are times that we are moving in right relationship with him. But struggles come our way. And it's not that he's not God. It's not that he's not present. It's not that he's not powerful. It's that he is working and he is he is he's refining us and he is growing us. And we're going to see specifically how he does that in Elijah's life. Now, I hope you've come ready because I'm ready. And we're going to see four main things. We have to, number one, recognize the schemes of the enemy. First, most people don't even know we have an enemy. So let me just start there. We have an enemy, an adversary who does not want to see us loving the Lord, loved by the Lord and following his will and plan. So we have to recognize we have an adversary and and he has a very specific scheme and way in which he operates. That's the first thing. Second thing, we're going to have to learn to rest in the Lord's provision. That God, he has done some very specific things in our life and he is still willing to do those things. And we have to be willing to rest down in his provision. The third thing we're going to look at is we have to remember that the Lord, he works in uh, quiet ways. 
Like not everything that God does has to be dramatic and big and loud and draw a whole lot of attention for it to be of him and for it to be powerful and for it to move about his agenda and transforming lives. And lastly, we're going to see that we have to be willing to receive the Lord's vision. His vision for the future. That he has a specific plan, a, a way in which things are to go. And we have to be willing to accept that, accept his plan. I hope you've had an opportunity to find First Kings chapter 19. I'm going to read the whole chapter. So hang on tight and uh, we're going to have a good time. First Kings 19 verse one. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done. And now he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me. And even more, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. And he was afraid and arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba. Which belongs to Judah. And he left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself they might die. And said, is it enough? Now, O Lord, take my life, for I'm not better than my father's. He lay down and slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, arise, eat. Then he looked and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food for 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then he came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by. And a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake, a fire, the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord 
God of hosts, for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazel, king of Aram, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi. You shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mahalah. You shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall come about. The one who escapes from the sword of Hazael and Jehu shall put to death. The one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there, and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he with the 12. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother. Then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen. And gave it to the people that they ate, and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. The first thing I want us to see as we prepare for trials after victory is that we have to be willing to recognize the schemes of the enemy. In our passage in chapter 19, verse 1, we realize very quickly who the adversary of Elijah, the humanly speaking, we realize who they are. The Bible says in verse 1, Ahab told Jezebel. Now, this is important to recognize. They were not there whenever the prophets were killed. They were not there whenever the fire fell. And so he has to go and tell his wife what happened. And when he, when he tells her, she is not too excited about it. Y'all see that? That he had killed all these prophets with swords, she sent a message. As a matter of fact, I like that just contemporary say this thing. He, she, she, she direct messaged Elijah and said, I'm gonna kill you. That's what she said. And so when we look at this very clearly, the, the enemy loves to send out threats. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that he is a roaring lion seeking one to devour. Like he, he loves to threaten us. He loves to make a lot of noise about the destruction that he desires to bring. And so we need to recognize that. And in the midst of struggle and discouragement and despair and temptation, we're going to see how Elijah struggled, how we can learn, but how God is faithful. We see on the front end that he hears this message and she says, look, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to make you just like them. And she, she was very clear about her expectations of what happened. She said, by tomorrow at this time, I mean, you got 24 hours, my brother. So you better eat your last meal, sing your last song, go visit your people because you're fishing to get up on out of here. And when I think about that, I think about Elijah's response. In verse 3, what does it say? And he was afraid. 
I just want you to take down a supplemental passage in the New Testament, James chapter 5, verse 17. And I'm so glad that the Lord put this in here for us because sometimes, you know, when we read the Bible and we read about Moses or Elijah or David, sometimes we can begin to think that these individuals were not human like we are. But what does the Bible say? Verse 17 says this, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. So he had the same, he felt the same emotions we feel. He had the same discouragement that we feel. But the thing about that, though, is even though that was true of him, God still used him in a great way. In what way? Why, was, why were they so upset in the first place? Well, here's the deal. Whenever Elijah went and he faced off with Ahab and Jezebel in the first place, he said, listen, y'all serving Baal. He the God of fertility. He the God that makes agricultural things grow and makes it rain. Well, how about this? How about it don't rain for three years? How about that? How about that? Let's see. Let's see how you like that. And that's exactly what happened. He talked to God. He prayed. This is what the text says. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for how long? Three years and six months. So even though he experienced the same struggles and the same shortcomings that we experience, God was still able to use him greatly. Now, we're going to learn something from this incident, this, this time in his life that I think should give us strength and encourage and hope. Because the first thing that has to happen is we have to have a perspective shift. Whenever we find ourselves in a trial and a hardship on the back end of God doing something great, a perspective shift has to happen. He had a perspective shift. Do you notice what happened? When he got the message that Jezebel had sent, he went from looking at God, the same God who fire had failed and it was all good and everything was great. He shifted his perspective from looking there to looking at Jezebel and Ahab and what they wanted to do. The perspective shifted. So let, let me just say by way of application and encouragement that we must never let short-term victories don't let short-term victories cause us to think that the war is over. See, what we have to understand is that while we are on this here planet, we are in a spiritual battle. It was raging before we got here. It's raging while we are here. And let me just tell you, if we die and go to be with the Lord, it'll be raging while we are gone. And so we have to recognize that we have an enemy that is relentless in his desire to undo and to overthrow what God is doing and desiring to do. We have a relentless enemy. But can I just tell you, that's all right, because we have an all-powerful, relentless God who is pursuing and working and moving and is not even close. And so when we think about our perspective shift, he shifted, he focused, and he looked at Jezebel, he looked at Ahab, he looked at the message, and the Bible says in verse 3, what did he do? He was afraid. How do we know he was afraid? Because, you know, your, your emotions tend to lead you to act a certain way. And what did he do? Arose and ran. That's how we know it's right there in the text. And I'm not saying don't be afraid. I think that God has given us this real live emotion to help us in many cases. Big pit bull come running at you don't know. I guarantee you, you're going to be afraid. It's just going to happen. Now, now it, it might be the nicest dog because I don't want people to, if you got a pit bull, I don't want nobody mad at me. People going to be mad at me. I ain't saying they all be trying to eat everybody. Okay, but if you don't know that dog and you roll up in the seat, you just jogging my own business. They come up, they hollering. You gonna be afraid? A fear is going to jump on you just like that. So I, I'm not saying that there are not times, moments that, that 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 we are not afraid. But the key here is not to allow that fear to move into the position where it controls your life. 
where it controls you because this fear, he was afraid it began to control. How do we know? Because he ran. I didn't write the Bible. It tells us very clearly. He ran. He ran. He arose and he ran. And he ran for his life. I don't know how, how clear it needs to be. So instead of allowing fear to control us, what should control us? I'm so glad y'all asked. If you're taking notes, I want you to jot down a passage, Psalm 119, verse 105. 119.105 says this. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. See, when we start thinking about what controls us, we need to allow the word of God to direct us that we come to the word of God. And even though the circumstances around us might cause us to be fearful, they might cause us to struggle. They might cause us to not understand. We have a very sure word that is going to light up the way for us. It's going to be a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. And that is where we orient the decision making process of our lives. This is where we come to hear from God. We hear his instructions for life. We understand what he desires, who he desires us to be. And we allow that to orient us, orient our feet, orient our path, show us the way. And we trust him. You know, when I think about this, it makes me think about something I got to experience this past week while I was out, didn't get to see y'all. I went uh, for the first time I went fishing on a river, never been fishing on a river ever in my life. And I got in the boat and can I tell you, it was beautiful. God's creation out there. I'm like, hallelujah, hallelujah, this is great. And can I tell you that fish was hitting that day, but we ain't here to talk about all that. But there were some things that fascinated me. I had never been on the river before, right? So you, we got this current. It's coming at us the entire time. The water never said, hold up for a minute. Let me do something else different. The whole entire time, from the moment we got there to we left, the current was coming. But I was in this boat, and the boat, it had a motor in the front called a trolling motor. And the brother that had the boat, he let the trolling motor down, and I had never seen one like this. It was fancy kind. It had this little remote, and all you had to do was just push the little button, and it would pick up its pace based off of how you set it. So if the water was coming real fast, you just, and it would start spinning a little faster, and it would hold you right where you were. So when you got in the fish, if they was hitting, you could just stay right there and bang, bang, just get them all day long. And I'm like, this is amazing. And you could push the button, it could speed up, and it'd take you, it'd fight against the current, it'd take you up, it'd slow down if you want to rock back just a little bit. And I'm just telling you, as I'm sitting there fishing, I'm thinking about, you know what, God, this is a whole lot like life. Because many times we think that life is static, that it's still, that our spiritual condition is still. But that's not how this works. Because we are in hostile territory, we always have a current pushing against us, always trying to push us out of God's will, down river, always trying to push us down. But can I tell you, the Lord has put a great power source inside of us himself, the Holy Spirit of God. And can I tell you, whenever the turn comes, he'll take that word and he will make that thing spin and be able to keep you where you can lockstep, stay faithful while the fishing is good. If we will recognize the power and what is inside of us, no matter what the current is doing, no matter how it is pushing, that God inside of us, God in us, the hope of glory, he is working and he is moving. We don't let fear control us. You know, there's some things that I see, you know, when we think about this, not just a perspective shift, not just focusing on the word, but, but we also have to have the right view of God. And let me say it another way. We need to maintain a high view of God. You know, when he looked, when he got off and he started looking at the message and at Jezebel and at what didn't happen, it shook him and it shook his life. And he ran for his life and he, he, he did not maintain a high view of God. All I'm saying to you here is that when you are going through struggles, we must be willing to maintain a high view of God, who God is. You know, I, for some of us, we are in the practice 
of telling God about our struggles. And I think that's a fantastic thing. You should tell God about your struggles. But there has to be this other part of our life where we shift and we start telling our struggles about our God. There's a shift that we must make. And all through the Psalms, you're going to see it. Let me just give you one example. Okay? Can I give you one example? Y'all don't seem too disagreeable up in here. Psalm 63, verses 1 through 4. This, this is an example. Whenever you, you, you're struggling, you're going through different things, then you start telling the struggle. You start, you start understanding clearly, like, this is who I'm dealing with. It says this, oh, God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. It says this, thus, I have seen you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. I will, I will lift up my hands to your name. See, so there comes a time, a time in your relationship with the Lord, a time where not only do you tell him about the hardships and the struggles and the difficulties and the pressure, but where you begin to take who he is, his attributes, his power and his glory and his loving kindness and his faithfulness and his might. And you begin to apply those down into what's going on. And, and you base off of who he is, even if it doesn't change in your lifetime, you, you, you continue to look and see. You see, all I'm saying to you, is that at some point in our walk with the Lord, we got to get a little grit to us. You know, we got to have some grit, spiritual grit. Like it's not always just kumbaya and sing around a campfire, make s'mores and all that stuff in the Christian life. And we have to be willing to have grit in our soul, understanding that it's not our strength, it's God's strength through us, can I tell you? And he is desiring for us to resist, to stand firm in the evil day. And it's based off of what he is doing, but we are an open vessel for him to work and to hold. And so we take it seriously. You know, I, when I think about this, I think about the fact that one of the things we see from this is that Elijah, he had lost his fight. He had lost his fight. The same Elijah that stood and stared down this evil queen and king and told him, all right, y'all think that's y'all God? How about this? How about it don't rain for three years and change? How about that? The same Elijah. What, what's the text telling us he's doing? He is running from his life, for his life. At some point, he had lost his fight. I love to ask this question. Anybody in here grow up fighting? Let me just see how many fighters we got growing up. Okay, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. I know what it's like. I know some of you in here, you probably ain't got into a, a fight, a fight in your whole life. And I commend you for that. We need y'all in the church. <laughs> Peacemakers in the church. We need plenty of y'all. Because we got a whole lot of us up here fighting all the time. And we just, it's natural for us to argue and fight. We need some peacemakers up in here. But can I just tell you, there has to come a time where there's enough grit in you, where you recognize that, listen, we are going to stand. And a lot of times in the church, we play defense. And I'm not saying defense shouldn't be good, that it's not good, that we should not be on the defense, meaning that we, we hold the ground that God has given us. But that's not the only part of this walk. We have to begin to go on the offense, getting new ground that we see the enemy is, is, is having and occupying. And I know y'all thinking, how in the world do we do that, preacher? Can I tell you the first way you do it in prayer? You do it in prayer. Like, think about how many offensive prayers have you prayed lately? 
I'm not saying offensive like you make somebody mad or when, if they know it, they're going to be mad at you. I'm talking about prayers in which you go on the offense where it's something that you don't see happening already. Somebody's being saved. Somebody's marriage is restored. Somebody's health is good. I mean, think about these things, offense, when you don't see it. How many times are we praying offensively like, God, we want to meet you there. We already praying for it right now, and we want to see you work and move. Many times we are on the defensive. All the time we are reacting to something happens in our family, something happens in our community, something happens in our nation, something happens in our world, and we are just reactive all the time praying. But I think there has to come a time where our prayers move from being reactionary to what's happening to being offensive, meaning we are on the attack, asking God to do certain things, move certain mountains, open opportunities, change hearts and minds. That's what it means to have the grit. And then have the audacity to look to the word of God to find where God has already done it, already promised it, and hold on tight until we get there, until we see him bring it to pass. You know, when I think about this, he, he had lost his fight. And because that's true, it led him to great despair. So, so much so, let's just look at, look at it together in verse 4. He was asking God, he was like, God, can you just kill me? It's, can you just take me out? It's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm done here. Look, look, look at what he says. Verse 4 says this, but he himself went, went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might die and said, it is enough. Now, O Lord, take my life for I am not better than my father. He was in such, such distress, such a, his condition, his spiritual condition, his mental condition, his emotional condition, physical condition was in such distress that he like, look, the best thing that can happen is that I just go ahead and leave here. And when we look at this, and can I tell you, he's not the only one in scripture that you're going to find. There are several where, where men of God, women of God got to these places where they were so distraught, so, 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 there's so much struggle, so much anguish. They were like, God, just take me home. Let me just give you a short list real quick. How about Moses, Job, Jonah, Jeremiah, just to name you a couple. Where you get to this point where you, you miss out on the fact that God is working and moving and you get so inwardly focused that you miss that. And can I just tell you, I just feel like I need to go and say it just a little pastoral. I don't know about your mind and I don't know about your thoughts. If you ever thought about taking your life or harming yourself or because you think what's going on is, is too hard here. But can I just tell you, please don't make a permanent decision based off of temporary struggles. And when I say temporary struggles, I, it, it could be a day. It could be a week. It could be a month. It could be a year. It could be 10 years. It could be your entire life. But hear me when I tell you it is all temporary. Because God has worked it out in such a way that the things that are wrong here, he will write there in eternity. And so don't make a permanent decision here based off of a temporary struggle. I'm not saying that it's not hard. I'm not saying that it's not gut-wrenching, that it doesn't attack your heart and your mind. But understand, don't make a permanent decision based off of a temporary struggle right now. Because God is a good God. And what we see, every time I read this, I'm like, Lord, thank you for unanswered prayer sometimes. Because sometimes we might pray some things that we really don't want to see the answer to. And what God, not only does he not answer this prayer with a yes, he answers it no. And Elijah is one of the brothers that doesn't even taste death in the first place, right? In this time, he gets taken up. So not only does he, 
You know what I'm saying? Like, it's amazing to me when you look at how God ministers to his servant and the difficulties and in the hardships of his life, how his compassion, his grace, his comfort, all those things right here on full display. And I just happen to believe that he's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. I just want to highlight a few things that I believe led, led Elijah to this, this situation. Let's go give them to you briefly, and then we'll move to our next movement. I think, number one, he had experienced great disappointment. You know, I feel like just when you read the text, I believe that when you read the text, you know, Elijah, he was expecting fire to fall. The nation to see it. They, they all repent. Ahab repents. Jezebel, they're like, what have we been doing all this time? We have missed it. Elijah, you've been right all this time. And we're going to worship the living God. I feel like that's what he thought was going to happen. Is that what happened? Nope. Right the opposite. The next day he getting the message like, we're fitting to kill you. He's like, hold on, hold up, hold up. How we go from, how we get to this? He was, I believe there was great disappointment. And can I tell you many times in our lives, whenever we experience disappointment, that's one of the most vulnerable times for us. We have to be careful how we live our lives in the midst of disappointment when things don't go the way that we wanted them to go. We have to be very careful how we allow our minds to, to, to be used and to be manipulated and to run whenever things don't happen the way in which we do when we, we are in a disappointing time or season. But not just disappointment, though. Uh, there's also something that's very clear here. Uh, Elijah, he isolated himself. Did you catch it? The, the progression, the, the Bible says in verse 3 that he, he ran for his life and he came to Beersheba. He went south. He went to L.A., like lower Alabama. He went south, okay? He went south. And it says he came to Beersheba and he, and he left his servant there. Did y'all catch that? Then he continued on even further. And so he's isolated. And can I tell you, when we are isolated, that is one of the most dangerous times in our life. Now, can, there are a lot of reasons why a person might be isolated. It could be health reasons. Uh, it, it could be you've just had a change of location, like you moved to a new place, new job. You don't know anybody. Go to a new school. I mean, there's there a lot of reasons. Death in the family. There are a lot of reasons why you could be isolated. But can I just tell you, the key is that there's a very dangerous moment where the enemy can capitalize on your isolation, Right? I like said like this, if you ever watch, I'm so glad that in Peter, he uses the illustration of a roaring lion. If you ever watch lions hunt, what is their desire? Do they attack the whole pack all at one time? No, they sit back and they look at all. Oh, you see that little zebra right there? We're going to get that little zebra right there. We want the little one. And then they get the pack all up in a frenzy where they run off and they leave one isolated. And then the lions, they all, hey, they jump on them. They all eat zebra cakes, mm, eating zebra cake. And then he wants to turn you into a zebra cake. That's exactly what he desires to do. And what he does is when we get in isolation, that is when he begins to work and move. And we see it isolate himself out. And we have to be aware of that in our own lives, in the lives of those who are in our fellowship and our families. We have to be aware of that. Let me just give you one more. I, I believe that, you know, when you look at I Elijah, he had compared himself to the fathers. Did you catch it right there? He says, for I am not better than my fathers. And if you start doing this comparison game, you're going to find yourself in a very difficult situation. It's very imperative that whenever you are going through hostilities and difficulties, you don't try to compare your life and your situation with everybody else around you. You want to deal with God one-on-one. -on -one. You want to ask him to work and to move in your life one-on-one. -on -one. And you can say, I see what you're doing everybody else. Like, but Lord, I believe you got something for me. I, you want to keep it consistent because you will find yourself in great despair. 
And it's easy to have blind spots and to forget the good things that God has done. The second thing I want us to see is that we need to be willing to rest in the Lord's provision. That's in verses five through eight. In, five, in verse five, it says this. He, he, he lay down and he slept under a juniper tree. And behold, there was an angel touching him. And he said to him, arise, eat. Then he looked and behold, there was at his head a bread cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. So he ate and drank. He lied down again. The angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise, eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he rose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days, 40 nights to Horeb, the mountain of God. You see, we have to be willing to rest in the Lord's provision. Now, can I tell you, this is one of my favorite parts in all this whole passage that my favorite getting ready to come. But I love this one because what we see here is the Lord's provision, the Lord's provision in three ways. As we go through the rest of this text, I just want to submit to you these three ways in which we see the Lord minister to Elijah. And, and I believe that you and your own life, me and my own life, we need to look for these three things, his care, his communication and his commission, care, communication, commission. Now, when we look at his care, it, it's real easy to see at the, at the front end, right? In, in verse 5, he, he laid down, and the Lord had an angel come and wake him up. He was sleep, sleeping good, right? And what I love about this is the angel was a chef. He could cook. And he had cooked him, it says very clearly in our text, he had cooked him bread cake, hot stones right above his head, all right? And so I don't know, you know, how about y'all, but there ain't nothing like waking up to aroma or something good cooking. You know what I'm trying to tell you? That's a great thing. He, he wakes up, and if you notice it, he sleep. The angel wakes him up. He eats. What does he do? Go back to sleep. He wakes him up. Eat again. He like, look, because you got a journey to make. And I love the dynamic here where God is reminding Elijah of how faithful God has been to him in the past. If you remember, this is not the, the first time, not even the second time where God is having to supernaturally provide for him to have something to eat. You remember, if you, if you remember his life, the ravens, God used the ravens to be able to feed him. God used a widow to be able to feed him. And so the Lord is letting him know, I ain't changed, brother. What you think this is? I'm still the same God. I'm still the same one. I'm still the same one that's providing, that's caring for you, that's loving you. I I'm still the same one. Now, I don't know about y'all, but this was some good bread cake now. What kind of diet is this? You eat twice and you're good for 40 days. That's some good stuff. I know we had it. Let me get that diet. Let, 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 let me get on that. Now, let me just say that I believe that, that what God is doing here is he is showing him the provision, the provision of of, of how he takes care of his children. Now, number one, we see that he brings an angel. He uses angel. And I'm just going to tell you, we need to do a directive study on angels in the Bible because I, I really believe as the church, we have no idea how God deploys, how angels are actively working on God's behalf for our good to see things coming to, to, to being. I, I don't think we understand that. We, we, a lot of times we see him chubby, rolling with little wings and moving around. That ain't how this works. That's not it. How God, you, you know, in Scripture, over and over again, Old and New Testament, you see angels involved, actively moving and working. And like whenever people would encounter them, they, they, they believed they were other human beings. So as it says in Hebrews, it's, it's possible to have entertained an angel and not even know it. 
I know y'all thinking, what did you do on this time you was away? What were you reading? What were you drinking? The, the word of God. How God has these ministering spirits and they do what he desires for them to do. And he, and he allows them to work in our lives to help us be about his business, to minister and to take care of us. And I think this is a great reminder, a great reminder. Because this angel, not only does it provide the sustenance that he needs, the food that he needs, but he also brings about another need in his life. He fulfills another need, and that's companionship. Now, now he has the angel there, the angel waking him up. And now he's there. He's involved in the situation. And I think many times we forget that, that God, he is working on all sides. And he, is, he has angels. And can I tell you, don't think like just a little, have you read Revelation? Just get you a little of that if you don't really know what's going on with the angels, okay? But all I'm saying to you is we miss out on that so many times. But I see in this that God is working and he desires to work and he is providing his provision, his grace and his goodness. Can I just share a passage with you? Y'all don't seem too disagreeable. Matthew 11, 28 and 29. Jesus saying, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you'll find rest for your what? Soul. See, I believe that, that we have to be willing in the midst of trials, in the midst of hardships, to rest in his provision, to rest in what he's given us, the forgiveness and the joy and the peace and the grace and the goodness. But not just that, though, because I know y'all thinking the same thing I was thinking, like, how do we apply the fact that this man ate twice and was good for 40 days and 40 nights? How, do we, how does that work out in our day? How does that work out? Can I ask y'all a question? So how much... Was Elijah involved in making this meal? How much was he involved? Zero. Right? Zero. So when I think about this, can I just tell you, the only thing that he had to be willing to do was to wake up and to do what with it? Eat it, right? Well, can I just tell you, God has given us his word. And before I talk about the word, let me just talk about the living word. Let me talk about the son of God, the word. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And in, in, in Jesus' ministry, he says that he is the bread of understand now when you understand that and you recognize who he is and you bring him into your life he will give you the sustaining ability to be able to walk on any journey for the rest of your life 40 days and 40 nights ain't nothing on what Jesus Christ does and when you come to his word you come to his word and you are willing to take it in and to bring it in it will nurture you one word will hold you your entire life you can take one life burst and it will sustain you and orient you for the rest of your life the reason why we need to understand and know it is because guess what the angel says? The angel said in verse seven, the journey is too great for you in this hostile place, in this hostile territory on this planet. The journey is too great for us. But that's OK, because we have a God who is greater, the almighty, who has given us his word, who has given us himself. And as we are willing to come in and to take him in, we didn't create this. We didn't create Jesus. Can I tell you, he does not need us. But if we are willing to connect, he will sustain us for a lifetime. Practically speaking, it was about a 200-mile journey. And Elisha, I don't read anywhere where he had an automobile. He wasn't riding in no Land Rover or nothing. I don't read in here where he was riding on no beast of burden. So you know what he was doing? Riding left and rocking and beating them things down. That's a long way, 200 miles walking. Says the Lord sustained him. So when it comes to this, can I just tell you, we have to be willing to rest. Just one more quick little pastoral application, and I'm going to roll on. I'm going to meddle just a little, just a little bit. You know, one of the things that I find fascinating about this, this movement that God does in his life is you see sleep and eat. 
And can I just tell you, a lot of times when we come in to worship and we come before the Lord, we are straight tired. We've been running wild, running crazy. There's something about being rested, being ready, being, being full, having yourself ready to come in for worship. And can I just tell you, if you're staying up all night watching TV and all those other things on Saturday night, please get you some rest. Please go to bed. Take, put that phone down. You hear what I'm trying to say? Do not disturb. Only let your spouse and maybe your mama be able to call through, okay? Do not disturb and find that it's just something about being, being rested and, and being ready and, and having your senses in tune and ready for worship, ready to hear from God. And that's, that's what we see here. So many times I just find we just tired. We're tired. We done run like crazy Monday through Friday. Then we feel like we got to do something on Saturday because we done run like crazy Monday through Friday. And we ain't tired. And we come out here on Sunday. Y'all done tired. You know, preparation for worship. I'm done. I'm, not, I'm done meddling. Until this next point. The third point that I want us to see is that when we think about what God has done, we need to remember. We need to remember that the Lord, he works in quiet ways. You know, maybe as I've been preaching, you've been thinking about the fact that Elijah, he was alone, his by self, and this angel came and ministered to him and touched him and fed him. And you start thinking about people that maybe that you know are alone. Maybe they're in a fellowship. Maybe they're in your family. They don't have regular interaction with people. Maybe the Lord's saying to you, hey, hey, why don't you make them a meal? Reach out to them. Encourage them. You can't see, especially in the midst of all this mess going on right now, we got a whole lot of people that don't get a chance to be connected with. I'm saying, if you waiting on me and Washington to be able to hit and get, get to everybody, that ain't going to happen. I can just tell you that right now. That ain't going to happen. The church not designed that way. So maybe, maybe as you think through that, you, it will remind you, you know, that, God, he works in these quiet ways, but maybe as you're hearing his word, maybe he laying on your heart to be able to minister to someone. In our passage, we need to look at verses 9 through 14 for this next movement. It says, then he came there to a cave and lodged there, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very zealous for the Lord the God of hosts for the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. So he said, go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by and a great and strong wind was rending the mountain, shaking it, and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. You know, every time I read it, I can't help it. I shouldn't do this because y'all going to be thinking this every time y'all read it. And I always think of earth, wind, and fire. Come on. Every time I read it, that's what comes to get a little September. It's coming up. That's my, anyway, that's a time for a whole nother day. But when I think about this, I think earth, wind, and fire. But the construction here is we see wind, earth, fire. That this great wind comes, it comes to the mountain, and it shakes, and it's breaking the rocks into pieces. But guess what the text said? What did it say about the Lord? He wasn't in that. Then we look at the earthquake. Earthquake starts shaking, right? But what, what does the text say? He wasn't in that either. Say fire, right? Fire comes. Fire. But what does the text say? He ain't in that. 
And, and I ask myself, why, why in the world do, do, you, do, you, do you share these things? Well, because if we're going to have a, a proper perspective about the Lord, we have to also understand that we cannot box him into working in a certain way. And what I mean by this, a lot of times we think that God has to move in like these big, miraculous, powerful ways that are so visible and so loud and so dramatic. But that's not the only way that he works. I'm going to submit to you, that's not even primarily the way that he works. And we get so locked into that. We get so locked into that. That's how he has to work. But can I tell you that I believe the Bible is teaching us here that in Elijah's life, he saw the fire fall. He saw all these things. He was thinking that this big dramatic thing was, was going to be the reason and the way in which the people came back to God. And he's letting them know, uh-uh, uh-uh, this gentle blowing, the gentle blowing. Verse 13, when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and he went out and he stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here? That's where he was, in the whisper. Now, as we look at this, I just want you to notice something about Elijah. Earlier in, 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 this, in this section, God had asked him, he had asked him a, a very pointed question. He says, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, that question doesn't mean like, you are here, what are you doing while you are here? No, it's a question of geographical location. What you doing here? Like, you're supposed to be in the northern kingdom. That's where I sent you. You're the prophet there. What you doing down here? Now, can I ask y'all a question? Do you think God asked him that because he didn't know the answer? Okay. He knew already. I just want to make sure I knew who I was talking to. But did you catch Elijah's response? Did you see what he said? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel, he's going to give them this sob story here. They forsaken your covenants, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I alone am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Now, it's so important that we catch this because Elijah, basically what he said was, is you brought the power, but it just wasn't enough. It just wasn't enough. They're they, they not following you. Like, like what happened? Like, we were, the fire failed. What was supposed to happen? It didn't happen. It, it wasn't enough. The, the power was there. It just wasn't enough. And can I tell you, what he does is, is he shows us the fact that when we are in trials and difficulties, we have a tendency to have a selective memory. We have a tendency to have a selective memory. Notice he didn't say nothing about how the fire fell and about how the prophets got judged and how God had been faithful for those three and a half years. And none of that. He didn't say none of that. Right. We, we tend whenever we go through trials, to have a selective memory and it leans to the negative. If you have children or you've been around children, you know, it's to be the case. You can have a good day with your babies. Y'all went out fishing and. You went to the park and, and you had a good time. And then you ask him, how, how, how was your day? We didn't get ice cream. And you're like, hold up. We didn't get all this stuff. And you mad about ice cream? We get ice cream. You, you ain't said nothing about all the good. Y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're teachers, you know. I, I mean, my, my kids, and my, my daughter's in school, my son in school. I mean, how, how was your day? You didn't have senior friends, had recess, ate lunch. I didn't get to get in the treasure box today. Treasure box. You remember all this good stuff that went, that went on, and you telling me about what you didn't get to do. We, we, can I tell you, it doesn't change when we become adults. 
when we go through trials, we go through hardships, our memory, for whatever reason, we can have a selective memory and we and we tend it tends to lean toward the negative. Like we forget the faithfulness of God. We forget the faithfulness of God that he brings people into our lives and the role that they play. We, we forget and we lean negative if we're not careful. And that's exactly what he does. He looks at they tear now out. They don't believe you, God. But you don't say nothing else about how, how, how he's been faithful all these other times, all the way in which he's worked and moved. And then if we're not careful, we have a tendency to exaggerate our own importance. Did you see what he said? Look at what he said. They've forsaken your covenants, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. What did he say? And I alone am left. I'm the only one. Now, is that true? We know the whole story. We got the back end. Y'all, we know how to read it. But in his mind, and he know that he know better than this. Come on now. He know, he, we, we tend to exaggerate, and we think we're, we're the only ones praying. We're the only ones serious about discipleship. We're the only ones serious about evangelism. We're the only ones serious about church. We're the only ones serious about seeing people connected and made whole. That's not true. God is faithful. And if we're not careful in the midst of our trials, we can get this exaggeration, this, this view of ourselves that is inflated and not true. I know I told you I was, I'm not done meddling. I'm going to hit just one more time. Because when I think about this idea, as God is revealing to him in all these cataclysmic events, what he's letting him know is I have power and I'm in control. I have the power and I'm in control. But just because I have the power and I'm in control doesn't necessarily mean that that is how I'm revealing myself. That does not mean that, that that's what I'm doing now. And I'm just going to tell you, when I think about this, I'm, I'm going I'm to meddle with me just for a minute, okay? Is that all right? Because I didn't hit y'all a couple times already. I'm going I'm to disperse this thing out a little bit. And when I think about this, I think about all the times during the midst of all the, 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 the sickness and the crisis and all the pandemic and all this other stuff, how many times I pray, God, I just pray you bring revival. That, that's what we need. We need revival. We need fire falling, Holy Ghost working revival that nobody knows. And, I, and you know, I'm praying that way, right? And, and hear me, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray that way. And I'm not saying, because I believe God is the almighty, I believe that he can move in that way. From the top of my head to the bottom of my feet, I believe that he can rend the heavens wide open and he can save and do things that we cannot fathom or explain. I believe that. But the thing that I keep coming back to, and I'm asking myself personally, Jamar, are you really ready for that, though? Are you really ready for that? Because when you look in Scripture, like when that type of move of God happens, the majority of the time, the people that were trusting God and being used for him, they were not ready. Can I give you an example? What about Brother Jonah? Brother Jonah. Brother Jonah, God just told him, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to preach. I want you to preach there. And Jonah was like, I'm not finna do it because I know what kind of God you are. I'm not going up in there. They don't deserve you. They don't deserve it. I'm not doing it. He went anyways after some encouragement. And he preached. And what happened? Revival broke out from the top to the bottom. Even the animals had sackcloth and ashes on. And when I think about this, I'm just keeping it real with y'all. Just, just hang with me. I'm keeping it real. I ask myself, Jamar, are you really ready? Because can I tell you, when this type of revival really happens, have you been faithful to hear the still, small whisper of God as you go through his word daily and you hear and you orient your life around it and you allow him to begin to change and transform your mind and to change and transform your heart to get you ready? Because can I tell you, when this type of revival happens, whenever the spirit of God, he is convicting the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment, when that thing happens on a major scale, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. 
People are going to be giving their life to Jesus that you don't like, that I don't like, that they have done things to hurt me, hurt you. They've said all types of stuff. They live in all types of foul, wicked lives, and they're going to walk through that door right there. And are you ready? Am I ready for when that happens? Am I ready? Are you ready? Are we ready to understand that just because they have given their life to Jesus don't mean they ain't got a whole lot of baggage. They backing U-Haul trucks up to the church and they're going to dump all that stuff out. Are we going to be ready to sift through all of that and pray with them and help them and minister to them? Are we going to be ready for that? And that, that's what I'm saying is that, that when we pray and we want all these big things, right? Who? Can you hear me yet, IG? IG, you the man. Hallelujah, thou and the glory, Lord, revive us again. There it is. All right. Y'all ready? Gladiators ready. Fantastic. Are we ready? That's where I was at, revival. So when we think about this idea of revival, and we see God moving, like that, that's what you see. Like that, that's what you see when God moves like this, people coming. You know, am I ready? Are you ready? Are we ready for family members? They, they done done us dirty. Friends, business part, all, all these things. Are we are we ready for that? Are we are we taking time? Because all I can think about is God is saying, listen, many times we are looking for the magnificent. We are looking for the dramatic. We are looking for the big. And I believe God can do all of that. But he also I just find that the mode that he works in the majority of the time is in the still small whisper. As you open up the word of God and you begin to read through Psalm and that Psalm comes out and it encourages and it gives you the strength that you need. It gives you the direction that you need. It gives you the hope that you need. And you're willing to take your life and to orient around that word. When you open up Proverbs and you look in the Gospels and you begin to see how Jesus loved and worked. Are we willing to, on a small basis, small whisper, at night, in the morning, be willing to orient our lives so we can be ready for what he's doing? That, that, that's where I'm at. I'm not saying he can't do it. I'm not saying don't pray for big things, but all I'm saying to you is that when you look at it, are you ready? Are we ready? I'm just going to keep it real. I, I just know there are certain folks like they come to me and they say, man, God has revealed himself to me. I realize what's wrong in my life and I'm ready to. There's some people that can walk in here right now probably gonna be like, you playing with me. You ain't serious. You trying to just get in here so you can mess up what we got. I'm just telling you, that's how I'm leaning. That's how I'm leaning. I'm just being, keeping it real. And I need God to, to give me the discernment, to let me see clearly, to let me understand, to, to let me see how this thing's going to work. That's what I'm looking for. Rice man saved the day. Love you, brother. Because you know I need that other hand. IG saved the day. Put you in one hand. That ain't going to work. All right, let's see here. Thank you, IG. Ooh, there we go. Can I just tell you, we have to be willing. I'm, I'm just going to share a passage. I know I could be in here all night. I want to share Matthew 6. Verses 5 through 8 to talk about the condition of our spiritual health and how we think about this idea of prayer and connecting with God. And I just want you to see something. You, you let me know what sticks out to you. 
because I'm going to pause and y'all be ready. So when you pray, you're not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and, and pray in the synagogues. And on the street corners, it's not it nothing to do with public prayer. It has to do with the motivation, the reason why they do it. Here's the reason. So that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door and pray to your father who is in. And your father who sees what is done in will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition. God is not hard of hearing. He'll need you to tell him a hundred times. There's a difference between repetition and persistence. Don't, don't do it as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words, the content of what they're saying. So do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. So the secret, the, the whisper, the being, being trained to discern the word of God, the spirit of God, as he is taking the word of God and putting it into our hearts and our lives and allowing that to orient us. So, so in the moments that we need to know a direction or when we need to know how to share with this family member, share with this coworker, share with this fellow student that God is, is, is leading us. We, listen, you can pray them quick prayers like, God, show me the way. God, give me the words. Show me. Help me. He is all about that. But can I tell you, as you are trained in those quiet moments to hear him, he didn't have to do a whole lot of jerking to get you to move. You'll be sensitive to what he's doing. You know, the last thing I want us to see is that we have to be willing to receive the Lord's vision for the future. We have to be willing to see the Lord's vision for the future. One of the things I love about our God is that when he's ministering to Elijah in this very difficult moment, is that not only does he care for him, not only does he communicate with him, but he also commissions him. He gives him a task to do. And we saw it in our text from verses 15 through 21. For the sake of time, I can't get it all, but we see that he gives him a task, and that's to go and to connect with three people. And it's amazing to me. He didn't go tell him to build a building. He didn't go tell him to go and try. It's about people. Hear what I'm telling you now. It has always been about people. It will always be about people. Now, we use resources and other things to be able to help people and to do certain things, but it's about people. So when you think about your mission and the commission that God places on your life, it has to be for the people, for God to see God's work in people. And he gives him three people. You know, Isaiah the king, also Jehu's going to be a king, and then also we're going to see Elisha. And, and the reason what he does here, it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. Because in order to see Baal worship extinguished in the kingdom, Elijah thought, hey, it's going to happen on Mount Carmel. This one time thing, boom, God going to show out and everybody going to follow. But God, I believe that in the midst of his whispering, this is what God was revealing to him. You, you thought it was going to be on Carmel. That, that's not how I'm working here. It's going to be a process over time in which they're going to be these two kings and they're going to snuff it out. And if those two don't get it, then Elijah going to get the rest of them that they don't get. And it's going to be a process over time of steadfastness and faithfulness and war and grit and difficulty to see the vision implemented. That shouldn't sound like too foreign to us in the church. 
Because can I just submit to you, if God wanted the whole world saved, right after he was raised from the dead, he could have just, boom, made it happen right there. But that's not the process that he chose. He chose the church. He chose the foolish of the gospel over time, moving, faithfulness, generation after generation. And that's what I see. We have to understand that we have to trust that vision that it's one life at a time. It's one movement at a time. It's one conversation, one gospel. We share one faith, one salvation that he continues to stack and build for generation to generation. And he tells them, listen, you're not going to be the one that fulfills this, Elijah. Like that, that's, that's what he was saying when he said, listen, I need you. You need to get these two kings and I need you to go on, put your mantle, go put your mantle on Elijah. He knew what that meant. He knew my successor, the one who's going to replace me. That's what it means to succeed somebody. You replace them. He knew this and he was willing to accept it. Can I just ask two questions? When you think about your life, the, the first question is, are you living your life in the present, fighting the good fight, and preparing somebody to fight in the future? Are you living right now, fighting the good fight, and preparing somebody to fight the good fight in the future? Because that, that's really what it's all about. Like right now, I don't know if we're going to have 50, 60, 70, 80 years. I don't know how many years you have. But in the present, are we living our life right now fighting a good fight and also preparing somebody else to fight the good fight once we leave? It could be your children. It could be somebody in your neighborhood, somebody in you, you, you just find. If you, if you are not, you can, you can go ahead and pray, God, give me somebody. Help one, help me to be fighting a good fight. And two, help me to find somebody that I can pour my life into that when I'm gone up out of here, they will keep this thing moving. That, that, that's the, that was the, the plan. You know, you have to be willing to be connected to the battle. And, and I'm going to tell you, Elisha shows us the way in which you are to do that. Let's just look at his call here for a second. In verse 19, talking about Elijah, says this, So he departed from there, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing, with 12 pairs of oxen before him, and he with the 12th. Let me, let me just tell you, if you didn't know, if you got 24 oxen rolling, you got some, some of that right there. You got some money, okay? This was the nice John Deere he was rolling with, okay? Let me just contemporary, put that in contemporary land. And it says that Elijah, he, came, he passed by, he put his mantle over him, which is a picture of, of a, a process of transfer. The prophetic ministry is transferring. Elijah's still alive. Both of them alive at the same time. But it's the idea of saying, listen, it's a transfer. The same way, whenever, whenever, whenever uh, Samuel went to David, Saul was still alive. The transfer happened still while they were both rolling together. Except Saul didn't do what he was supposed to do, but that's the topic of another day. He was trying to kill him instead of teaching, but that's a whole other topic. But when you see this movement, I want you to see what Elisha does, though. And many people look at this and they think initially, oh, he doesn't accept the call. That's not true. In verse 20, he left the oxen and ran after Elijah. How do we know he accepted the call? Right there, first step. He left the ox. He said, peace to that, that John Deere, and I'm going to go over here, over here, and I'm going to follow you. Now, when he gets there, he's saying, I'm accepting what's just happened. When he gets there, he says, hey, can I go kiss my mom and daddy? Let me let me translate this thing. It's beautiful here. Let me go let them know. Let me go let them know what's happening in my life. So look at what Elijah says. This is what he says back. And he says to him, go back again. 
for what have I done to you? Meaning, go. I didn't call you. The Lord did. That, that, that's the construction here. It's not, he's not saying, oh, pff, I can't trust you. I knew I shouldn't have came put my mantle on you. That's not what he's saying. He knew when he ran after him, he said, yeah, you go. That's a good thing because you're going to see the structure of what, Elijah, uh, what Elisha does whenever he accepts the calling. First and foremost, he tells those who are intimate, close to him, his mom and daddy. Then it spreads out a little wider. He's going he gonna to take the oxen. He's going to sacrifice them. and He's going to actually have a party and have a good time with the people because of his call. He's going to let them know, listen, I've been called. I'm not going back. I'm not farming no more. Don't plan on me riding on no more oxen. Don't be planning on me doing none of this in, in the field. And he has a party. And he's saying, listen, I'm separating my life out from the way in which I had my means. And now I'm connected. And the last way we know he was real is because what does the Bible say at the very end? Then he arose. And follow Elijah and minister to him. You see, that, that's the direction. If you want to know, number one, for salvation, it's this. The Lord is the one got to move towards you anyways. And can I just tell you, the beautiful thing is, is that's exactly what he's doing. Now, you have to be willing. The text says he ran after him. You have to be willing to turn, quit running away from him, and run to him. Come to him. Repentance, come to him. And then after you saved, after you brought into the relationship, you, you accept it. Then the natural thing is you start telling people you love, the people that are right around you. And then you start telling more people and let that thing get wider and wider. But ultimately, you are serving the Lord. That's the movement. The question is, have you been willing to do that? He provides a beautiful thing, a beautiful way in which we are to do that. Now, maybe you are thinking. My life really is not much. I really don't have much to offer the Lord. I'm smiling because the Lord doesn't need much to do a lot. As a matter of fact, he does a whole lot with a little. When I look at this Bible and I think about the things that God has done, a whole lot that he's done with a little, can I just tell you, Whenever his people need to be delivered in Egypt, guess what he did? He sent a baby to get that, that done. Now, he grew up, but he sent a baby. He didn't just immediately, boom, set it free like that. Whenever his people were being tormented by this big old giant by Goliath, you know what he sent in? Sent in a young thundercat with a sling and a stone, and he got a whole lot done. When I think about the fact that during the time of the judges and Gideon, whenever the people were struggling, he, he, he made that army go down to 300 people, and he got a whole lot done with a little. Whenever you look at the world landscape and you see the, the entire world in sin and separated from God, you know what God's plan was? Was to come in the form of a baby first. He came down in a manger. And he grew up 33 years taking care of business so we could be able to have a relationship. Can I tell you, he doesn't need a, a lot to do a lot. Will you be willing to surrender? You see, I find that in our lives, there's going to be a lot of trouble and tribulation and difficulty. But can I tell you? God is a good God. We have an enemy. The Lord has already let us know his schemes. God is a God of provision and care. And he desires for you to come in and to trust him. So he can work and move on your behalf and speak to you in a beautiful, wonderful relationship in the quietness of your own heart and mind. And he desires to give you a purpose for living, a commission, if you'd be willing to accept it. Can you pray with me? Lord, we love you. We thank you. And Lord, I'm just thankful that through mics falling and batteries coming out, Lord, you can still work and move. 
And God, I pray that if there's anyone here, anyone watching, that, Lord, they would surrender their life to you. That, God, they would recognize what you've done in your life, death, burial, and resurrection. And that you're coming back. And that, Lord, no matter what the trial is in their life, Lord, you can deliver them. Whether it's, Lord, in this earthly body, you can deliver them. I believe that you, the same power then is the same power now. Or if it's, Lord, in eternity, when you deliver us all for good, Lord, that's going to be the case. I pray that they would surrender their life to you. I say, Lord Jesus, save me, tame me, take my life, use it for your glory. Lord, I pray that you would help us, God, to be faithful. Those of us that have surrendered our life to you, Lord, help us to continue to trust you, to look for your provision, to see where you're working. And Lord, to follow you very clearly. God, help us to be ready, Lord. I think about the big things we've been praying and what we want to see happen. But Lord, help us to be a ready people. Help us to be ready. Help me to be ready. God, as we go into this time of reflection and response, Lord, I'm praying you have your way. That God, you would save lives and encourage hearts and minds. And remind us of your faithfulness and goodness. But we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. I hope God spoke to you during the message today. We want to know about it. You can fill out a connection card at wordbaptist.com slash connection card. We want to help you through any spiritual questions you may have while you're on this journey. You see, we believe that the first step is for a person to give their life to Jesus Christ. The Bible is very clear that the greatest need that humanity has is to be saved. And that the only way to be saved is through Jesus Christ. If you will agree with God that you need him for the forgiveness of your sins and you will turn to him in repentance and believe in him, uh, you will be saved. The Bible says that you do this by one believing that Jesus Christ died and was raised from the dead and that you believe that his payment is sufficient for you, that you will call out to him as Lord and Savior. He will save you. If you're listening to this service and do not have a church home, we would love for you to come and be our guest during a time of worship. We have multiple services. We would love to meet you personally and have you here for worship. You can check us out at wordbaptist.com for service times. If you've missed any sermons, they're all archived there online, so you can go back and watch them. You can connect with us on social media at Word Baptist. If you would like to invest in the ministry and continue the spread of the gospel, you can give online at wordbaptist.com give. I'm so grateful that you've joined us today, and I hope you've learned something that you can apply to your life, and we hope to see you again next time right here at Word Baptist Church.